You're listening to Grass Talk Radio with my dad, Bradley Laird. Howdy, folks, and welcome back to the podcast. In this episode, we're going to drop in on the luthier shop of a fellow by the name of Todd Luneberg. Todd is a pretty interesting guy. He's done a lot of uh, guitar tech work. He does repair. He builds instruments. And he's a fantastic musician as well. Anyway, I dropped by his shop and had a little conversation and recorded it. I will pre-warn you, this is a pretty long episode. We got on a lot of subjects, and so it goes a little long. Uh, don't feel bad if you need to uh, hit pause and listen to the rest of it tomorrow. That's okay. You know, it's easy to to uh, talk and talk and talk and talk when you run across somebody who's interested in the same kinds of things that you are. Uh, just to give you a little advance notice we are going to talk about building we're going to talk about how he got started we're going to talk about instrument repair and we're going to talk about setups and just all sorts of stuff so have fun uh, you'll be a fly on the wall in the shop of Todd Luneberg. Okay, so we are sitting here in, or I should say, Todd and I are sitting here in Americus, Georgia, in the Luthery shop of Todd Luneberg. <laughs> Did I pronounce that right, Todd? Yes, Luneberg, yep. Luneberg. Now, we were all very happy. I live down here in a small southwest Georgia town of Americus, Georgia, and as you can imagine, in a small town... There are not, you don't find a luthier shop on every corner. So there were a lot of people around here that, you know, were do-it-yourselfers and that sort of thing. And everybody, all the pickers that I knew got real excited when you moved to town. Yeah. And everybody came out of the woodwork to come check you out. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sitting in here in your shop looking around and I see a lot of guitar cases around and I know that you... Uh, there's repair work going on here. Yep. I know there's builds in progress, guitars and mandolins. Yeah. I, I see a mandolin repair going on over there. I also know you're doing some pretty serious restoration work yep. and run-of-the-mill setups and things like that. So you're doing a whole lot of different things, but let's back up a little bit. How did you get it? What's, what's your backstory? How did, so, how did you get into this? So I got into guitar building, um, guitar repair, and music stores uh, as an eighth grader. I got one story, and I, I tell it often. But uh, eighth grade basketball team couldn't get on the court until the ninth graders were done. So we had to wander around our small downtown of Alexandria, Minnesota, for an hour and a half every day. And my friends would get caught shoplifting or whatever, <laughs> go to the go to the pool hall and play pool and I would go to the music store every day every day and uh, so we started you know basketball starts what October end of October I'm, I'm like I want to work here so I go up to the boss and I'm like I want to work at the store and by that point I had been cleaning my mom's insurance agency since I was like 11 or 12 you know like she dropped me off go get groceries and I'd clean I'd have to clean the bathrooms 
you know, scrubbing toilets and the floors and dusting the desks and stuff. That's a pretty common job for kids that age. My brother and I were the church janitors yeah. at roughly that same age. Yeah, as yeah. soon as he had a driver's license, yep. I didn't, but we were janitors and did the very same task. Yeah, yeah. So I went to the to the shop owner. I'm like, well, I want to work here. And he's like, well, we don't hire kids. I'm like, well, you need me here because I can write my name. Now, at that point, the, it, it was like a... <laughs> Is a two-level or three-level shop. They had a basement level where the lesson rooms and stuff and the repair desks and stuff were. And then the main floor was the display area. And out front, they had, you know, eight or nine-foot or ten-foot grand pianos. I'm like, I can write my name in that piano, you know, in the dust. And all of the guitars in the middle of the store, your strings are black. And in the scoops on the strats, I can, you know, scoop away dust. And in the back of the shop, they had their freight elevator and and... They had so much cardboard piled up against the elevator that all of the pianos that were just the regular spin it little, you know, stand up studio pianos that they'd actually sell to a parent with kids and whatever to have. Yeah, there goes the. Sirens. That's the bluegrass police. Yeah, the bluegrass police. <laughs> yeah, are upstairs. So I was like, there's more cardboard piled up against your elevator. You can't deliver a piano. I was like, my mom works five doors down the way. School gets out at 3.30. I'll be here at 3.45. Um, she gets done with work at 5.30. I'll, I'll be done at 5.20, walk down and get a ride home. I'll, I'll dust your pianos. I'll dump your garbages. I'll, you know, change your strings, whatever. And it sounds like, like you basically gave them no choice. I, it, we got to hire was, this kid to shut him up. It kind of was that. And he, and he challenged me right back. He's like, okay. He's like, we can do that. He's like, but he's like, come in after the new year. And this was like around Thanksgiving or whatever. So he thought he was putting me off enough that I wouldn't show up, you know. Right, right. January 2nd, you know, because New Year's Day was a Sunday or a Monday or whatever. I showed up the next day. I'm like, okay, I'm here. And, and I worked there for... For eight years, as a, or for five years, um, eighth grade through high school, and uh, they never paid me. They, um, they let me take guitars off the wall. I went to college with um, five or seven guitars, I don't remember, and three amplifiers, you know? Because wow. I, had, I had a Strat, I had a Telecaster, I had an SG, I had a Les Paul... I had an ovation. Well, and probably a if they paid you, you probably would have bought things it's, like that. Exactly. Anyway. Maybe yeah. not as many, but yeah, no, that's that's literally all I had. So, um, <laughs> but the store was great because the the repair tech that was there was an old World War II radio operator, um, and only and worked on like old amplifiers and TVs and tube amplifier stuff, yeah. and he didn't want to do any of the repairs. So when the repairs came in, if it was a setup. He's like, here, kid, show me how to do it. And he's like, there's five more to do. Get to work kind of thing. And so I did that for two days. And then another one would come in. There would be a vintage mandolin that had a broken top. And he's like, here's how to put in a cleat. And here's how to redo a bridge. And, and so I was like, okay. And then he's like, here, there's two more of those. And it's exactly the same thing, but a little bit bigger on that one. And he gave me a, a, a 1920s Gibson harp guitar to work yeah. on. And those things were or 1910 or whatever, those big, crazy symphony ones. Right. And I just do bits and pieces. So by the time I graduated high school, I was in charge of selling all of the combo stuff, you know, unboxing it, pricing it, putting it out on the floor, keeping the, the guitar strings cleaned and, and changed when they needed it. And I was teaching lessons in the basement too. I had like 15 students or so. 
as being like the guy I was, I was such a bad teacher I was like hey, I was like, hey what do you want to learn and like <laughs> I just figured out by year and do it and um, and then they offered me a store just before my senior year so huh. they were opening a new shop in Minneapolis um, and was like I want you to be the manager of the store and I was like well I'm going to go to college so I went to college started booking bands and my roommate um, got me in with a really cool band his cousins were in who happened to be kind of one of the biggest scenester bands in Minneapolis. And um, and from there, I started teching for shows, and I did the same thing with Billy McLaughlin, who's a fingerstyle guitar player. Mm-hmm. I uh, He came to St. Olaf, and his guitars were in the sun, and I was like, dude, let me let me walk your guitars onto you, you know, when you need them from off stage. Let me keep them in the sun, because we'd put the stage in the worst possible position. And uh, he was like, okay. And he's like, do you do you tech? I was like, yeah, I tech for bands all the time. And he's like, okay. So he calls me up, and he's like, I'm doing a show at First Avenue. Why don't you come and, and tech for me? And I was like, okay. So I show up, and Billy McLaughlin, I don't know if you know who he is, a fingerstyle guitar player, and uh, does this crazy two-hand tap style stuff. I show up, and is completely able to do the whole thing, but he's opening up for Roger McGuinn, and he just wants to show up with a tech. So um, he, I show up, and... I teched the show, which I really didn't do any... I changed strings on two guitars, and yeah. that was it. And um, But yeah, and then after that, he called me up to do a J-Term. He was doing a tour in January, and he's like, you doing anything for J-Term? I'm like, nope. He's like, come on out on the road. And what is J-Term? So in St. Olaf, where I went to college, there was fall semester, and then January, the entire month of January, was one semester. You take one class oh, and, okay. and hit it hard, and then, then you have spring semester, where it's your second half of the year. Yeah. So. Okay. But yeah, so I kind, of, I kind of pushed my way into guitar repair and all things guitar, um, and that's happened quite a lot in my life, um, where I've... I've been confident enough to kind of bluster my way into something right, pretty cool. Right. So, well, I'm sure it's not that way today, but there's a point where there's a first time for everybody seeing a particular thing. Right. You know, I, I remember when I was in the printing business. Sometimes people would come in, and you know, the run of the mill order would be something I had done a lot, but occasionally you were asked to do something you had never done, right. and you. If you think you can do it, you just go ahead and take it on and then figure it out. Yeah. And I suspect that's true for auto repair and guitar repair and a yeah. lot of other things. Yeah, yeah, it's like we got... The shop I worked at was a was a Martin um, Gibson Fender dealer. And we got, we got in one of the very first uh, Eric Clapton Signature Series guitars. Mm-hmm. And um, the super nice one. And got it out and uh, Ron's like... Put on some strings, or the owner of the shop was put on some strings and set it up, and you, know, you can check it out. We had just gotten in a Martin batch, and so I pulled it out and felt the action was high. And I remember cranking on the truss rod, and and then, and then went lower, and I'm like, oh, okay, this is great. And then it cranked some more, and it went too far, you know. And it was that first experience of like, oh no, right. ah, now I have to undo it and, and find that kind of sweet spot before you know I kind of hit. And I've had enough of those experiences too, where you jump in and you. You setting intonation for the first time without. That's not just a. The first guitar I did was like a, a Les Paul Junior, like a '58 or whatever. The ones that just had the wraparound tailpiece and didn't have any intonatable kind of things. So I did one or two of those, and then realized that I would have to move the saddles to actually yeah. find the right spot. And that was kind of a whole revelation, you know, for 
14-year-old me doing something wrong or whatever. But yeah, or even building too. I built strap replacement bodies and a neck uh, in that shop just to kind of do it for fun. So jumping in and using a router for the first time and making some sawdust and routing out a truss rod slot that wasn't super perfect, but then having Ruben come over and go, hey man, you're going to put a fretboard over that anyway, it doesn't matter, you know? So I was like, I was like, oh, okay, there's some leeway in here where you don't have right. to be as perfect as you kind of think you need to sometimes, but... Yeah, it's a, it's kind of great. Well, over the years, um, I mean, obviously when you started, you were doing a lot of electric stuff. Is that still the case now? Because, of course, everybody I know is an acoustic guy. Right. I mean, if you're playing bluegrass, you're playing acoustic stuff. Right. And I'm sure that, you know, the mix of players here is probably different than it would would be in a larger city. Yeah. Or certainly if you were teching for a rock band, you probably weren't doing a lot of F5 mandolin work. Well, my my background, I mean, my playing background started, it's a classic, I started playing guitar when I was seven. First guitar for Christmas from Grandpa. Said you can't keep it unless you can learn a song by the end of the day, you know, or by the next morning. So I did a the one note G, you know, and just sang Mary Had a Little <laughs> Lamb and didn't change anything kind of thing. And um, so I grew up on country music and I grew, my, my grandfather had a dance band and, and his daughter sang backup kind of thing. So I grew up sitting side stage and and then played guitar. And do you play accordion? I have to know. I do not, no. <laughs> no but it no, would no. be good if you did. No, there is accordion <laughs> in that picture, but yeah, no. Um, but uh, I, so I played guitar and um, I got to junior high and I wasn't a good enough guitar I was just a strummer so then I started playing bass and got weirded into sidetracking to like Les Claypool and you know Flea from Red Hot Chili Peppers so it was all weird alternate style kind of stuff and then um, then I went back to guitar ninth, 10th grade and I had to uh, I had to accompany some seniors that were singing uh uh Simon and Garfunkel tune, I think, for their talent show. And they could sing, but they couldn't play guitar. So I was the guitar, and then they sang the Simon and Garfunkel stuff. But one of them was having a hard time finding the pitch. So I strummed the chord and found his note and, like, tapped it on the fretboard, you know, for a couple, you know, for half the melodies to find his harmonies. And my choir director came in and gave me a cassette tape of uh, Michael Hedges playing fingerstyle guitar. And I... It totally changed my life. I went home, put it in my dad's record player, you know, cassette player, and and uh, and yeah, just bawled because I could hear what was happening. So my 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 playing background then went fingerstyle. I mean, I was Leo Kotke, John Fahey, Michael Hedges, Billy McLaughlin, kind of stuff all the way through that. And then, um, but later in my building career, you know, I lived in Minnesota, and you can't build an acoustic in Minnesota unless you're really good. I mean, Jim Olson, who is probably the Stradivarius guitar maker of our time, lives in Minnesota. Charlie Hoffman, who has the oldest freestanding acoustic guitar repair shop in the country, is in Minnesota. Um, And then Brian Applegate's amazing, and Michael Keller, and, and Lloyd LaPlante, and I mean, you can't, you can't make, and the Red Wing School is there as well, so you can't make an acoustic guitar in Minnesota unless you hit standards. So you're right, I, my first 50 guitars went to all the metal kids in Minneapolis um, because I wasn't as good enough, but, but 
acoustic instruments and bluegrass and fingerstyle is all kind of where my heart is. So I think there's probably a lot of bluegrassers of my generation who came into it in the 70s that might only know about some of those people you just mentioned because of an old magazine called Fret's Magazine. Yeah. And before that was a magazine called Pickin'. Mm-hmm. And bluegrassers like me would get that because they covered bluegrass as well, but they also had articles on, you know, McLaughlin, people like that. Yeah. A, a lot, Leo Kotke. Or Peter you know, Lang. Which or, we yeah. wouldn't see at a bluegrass festival, but then you'd read about and you'd probably maybe go start seeing these people. Yeah. yeah and I so mean, it, it really helped merge a lot of styles that yeah. magazine and I think that's still going on today and we'll come back to this later uh, with uh, Fredboard Journal yeah let's just skip that for now we'll come <laughs> sure. back to it later sure uh, something I want to get into now because the audience of Grass Talk Radio the majority of them are people who play bluegrass mm-hmm. or are trying to learn to play yeah so Probably a pretty large number of beginners or near beginners, you know, been playing a year or two or three. Or people who are just, um, you know, actually playing. It's it's definitely not a podcast for fans. Right. You know, I, I don't want to interview people and, you know, talk about their current tour or right. their album that's coming out. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about things that can actually help somebody play better. Right. And sometimes this is somebody who's been playing for three months and sometimes it might be somebody who's been playing for 15 years and they'll learn something new so we're dealing uh you know because of your background uh we're primarily talking about banjo players mandolin players and guitar players right the fretted stringed bunch so what i wanted to kind of pick your brain on is picture that person who's been playing i don't know let's say under three years okay and they're they're probably still playing the first instrument that they acquired the first mandolin they bought the first banjo maybe they've moved up but um what kind of advice would you give to somebody like that you know imagine it was your friend and you're telling them maybe not your customer across the counter but how, how do they go about evaluating that thing they're holding in their hands because i know that as a teacher i've failed to do this a few times where somebody walked in they had a banjo or a mandolin and we started lessons and three or four or five lessons into it i finally say let me let me try that and i take their instrument and i go oh god no wonder no wonder you can't play this thing right and so i it's too high or their action is too wonky usually it's just flat out action right i mean that's that's usually the thing and so because of the time delay of sending them off somewhere to get it done and so on, I, you know, I began to do setup work, just quick and dirty stuff, mm-hmm. cutting nuts down and adjusting saddles and stuff like that, just so we could get them back rolling again. Right. And, but they simply didn't know. Right. Um, so just picture that kind of person. What are, what are the kind of things that they should maybe explore and find out? You know, maybe it's not them so much. Maybe they. A little tinkering with the instrument, and they could well, the first, happen a lot easier. The first thing to think of when you when you get an instrument to start with is that your instrument is not magic. It's a well, lot, that's the truth. <laughs> a lot of people are always afraid to adjust the truss rod, you know, or oh, should I? What if I over tighten? What if I do? I mean, if you 
if you if you take an Allen wrench or you take your your truss rod tool and you just start with it at 90 and you go uh, an eighth of a turn, not a full quarter turn, but you can tighten it a little bit to kind of see what happens and then play. Right. Like that's that that's that's always. I mean, that's me on as a 14 year old in that music store with uh, a fourteen thousand dollar Eric Clapton guitar. You know, Martin literally from the factory. Play a G chord, turn it. Play a G chord, turn it. Or, you know, a major scale and see what it does to the action you like. I mean, there are there's set measurements for guitar where you want, for a bluegrass setup, slightly above 330 seconds on the bass side and slightly above a 16th on the treble side. I mean, and I was just with um, Andrew Marlin of uh, Mandolin Orange and... I measured his, and his was five thirty seconds on the bass, and three and a half on the treble. Which to me, I would say we have to reset the neck. And he's like, "No, man, I love it, I yeah. love it." You know, he's just like, he's like, "You can't do this." Yeah, you do run organs. across people have their preferences uh, in in the mandolin world. Um, I, I see it all the time. I see good players and then try their instrument, and I physically can't, I cannot play that thing. Right, I'm like, take this thing back. Take your lore, right. you know? yeah, and, and they love it, you right. know. So some of it is what you're used to, and tonally, but but going let's let's back up a little bit. What about that beginner? So the beginner, I mean, like, how does he even know? I mean, I I think one piece of advice would be take your instrument, hand it to somebody who's been playing a while, and say, what do you think? Yeah, what, what do, do you, you think? think of this? Well, in any know? guitar tech that's worth their salt. You, you go into any shop and you say, is this where it should be? They should be able to put that instrument on their bench, measure it out, and say no or yes. Yeah. It's, it's what's normal and it's what's not. They shouldn't charge you for that either. That's the other thing. Five, five seconds of me looking at a guitar and checking the strings and saying it's right or it's not, and I'm not going to charge you a $15 or a $30 bench charge because I want you to come back, you yeah. know? Yeah. And well, I think a good place to do that too is at a jam session. If if you're in a place where you can yeah, find absolutely. some jams, look around for the best players and make friends with them and try their instrument and you let them try yours and most of those people are they don't have any money to make off of you. Right. And and most of them know a guy. Right. They know a guy who works on his and right. and they can steer you towards somebody who's probably got a little more experience with exactly what you play. Yeah, networking you know? for a tech is, is kind of important. I was part of a discussion earlier this week with somebody and they had a poor experience in the Savannah area and I know some people that work there and so I called them up and was like, Hey, who else would you do? And it's 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 it, I guess it comes down to not being afraid to ask for somebody else who knows, you know? I mean, because the, the measurements on, on exactly how to set it, and, and I hate to kind of tell them just to cut a nut and to to lower their that, because that, that if you go too far, if you don't, if you're not accounting for the angle, you can turn it into a sitar string, if, you know? It's, yeah. So there's more to that than that is. But I... It's not magic. Your truss rod is there to help you out, and it's they put them in there, and they've been putting them in there since the the late forties, fifties, you know. And so obviously they're yeah, they're but, functional. But for me, just my experience with guitar, mandolin, and banjo is that 
that is particularly what you're saying about the truss rod is particularly true for guitars and banjos yeah. because of the flexibility yeah, and the, the length. Neck. Yeah, the mandolin. I'm still kind of. I'm super new. I'm building my first one. I just, but I've had. I've been. I've been super lucky. I mean, I've been. I've had really great track chats with Mike Chemnitzer. I um I got to play Andrews uh, Henderson and his Sullivan. Um, and I don't know how to play. I you know I hold I can hold a G chord and uh, whatever the F seven or whatever the right. wh- whatever the two simplest guitar esque kind of chordy kind of things are. Well, I don't and, think that disqualifies you in any way because <laughs> just just to give you an example, I I am a piano tuner and piano technician, but I do not play piano. Right. Which sometimes shocks the people that I'm working for because right. they would just assume I don't play. Right. And, yeah. and a lot of, and I would say that ninety nine percent of players can't tune. But for the the mandolin, uh, piano players, I'm yeah. talking about, not you banjo players. The the travel the travel of that truss rod isn't probably going to impact the neck as much as it would on a banjo or a guitar. Yeah. Um, but then again, you can check to make sure. Oh, so for the mandolin player, you should be able to check your. Um, your intonation. And for that, the easiest thing to do is to take a tape measure or a ruler, um, measure from the leading edge, the string leading edge of your nut to the 12th fret, and then take that measurement and then put your tape measure starting at the 12th fret, and that should be right where your saddle hits. Right. You know? Uh, I've got on my blog, and I'll put a link to this on the show notes for anybody who is interested in taking a look at it. Um, back last Christmas, I did two little blog articles uh, designed for the person who is opening, tearing the gift wrap off, and pulling that mandolin out. Yeah. That just came from Amazon, and it a lot of times the bridge isn't even installed. Right. So you need to do that measurement, and right. I, so I've got some drawings up there of how to position. Yeah, that's great. How that's to even- at least get it close. And how to set it up and down and side to side for banjo and mandolin. So I'll put links there. Are there any... Um, or even getting getting a tuner on your phone. Because that was the thing for John. John came in and had me set up his mandolin. It played awesome. John, by the way, is the mandolin player in the group that I play in, the pluck tones. Yeah. So. And so, and he came in and it wasn't, he's like, it's not right. And I was like, okay. I was like, are you, set, are you checking your intonation? So I just pulled out a tuner on my phone. I have the Peterson app. I spent all of what five bucks on the five dollar version is worth buying don't get the the cheap one and um you get that you you hit the harmonic on the 12th fret and then you fret on the 12th fret and that'll check your intonation yeah see if they agree yeah which they should which they should and if they don't if the if the pitch is too sharp your saddle is too far away you need to bring it closer to your neck if 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 that's sharp, right? If it's flat, excuse me. If it's flat, then you have to bring the saddle up closer to bring the note sharp. If the note is sharp when you fret, you have to move the saddle backwards. Right. And do that for your, your two outside sets of strings to find that angle between your, your F-holes. If, if anybody is glazing over at listening to this right now and, and you feel like it's completely over your head, don't feel bad. Everybody starts in that same place. It's not place. magic. It's you just look at a diagram and you'll figure it out and it'll be. And there are some resources. Again, uh, take sure a look at the show notes page and and you for banjo and mandolin, it's pretty easy to make that adjustment. Guitar. Now we're kind of talking a yeah. little different. And but on the other hand, 
most guitars are pretty careful. Certainly if you bought a Martin or something, they're pretty careful. You're going to more than likely have the bridge in the right place. Although years ago I did encounter a Sigma one time. Yeah, not always the case. Yeah, it's not all, it's not guaranteed, but they glue them down. So they do take pains to put them in place. Yeah. And it's, it's much better now. Their factory is is pretty fantastic. Um, But yeah, a lot of those old instruments too. And that's the other thing too, is over time as the top, you know, as the, the fretboard extension or the, the wood under the fretboard extension sinks in and the top bubbles up, that brings the the saddle closer to the fretboard. And even that micro movement is enough to throw you yeah. off. So you'll see sometimes where people will fill the saddle slot and move move it back, yeah. you know, but that's for kind of a luthier to do. But for an acoustic, it's a lot tougher. Well, you just mentioned that's um, something more for a luthier to do. Let, let's talk a little bit about that. Let's Let's assume... See, I, I have always encouraged my own students to, like you said, not be afraid of their instrument. Yeah. But also to caution them about certain things. Like a person needs to know how to tune. Right. They definitely need to know how to change their own strings. Absolutely. You know, even a kid. I don't. Uh, or anybody should know that. And to the extent they can set, to me, the third thing is intonation moving the bridge around right. maybe even changing the bridge yeah or moving it up and down on a mandolin right. and then with guitar players you're not going to kill your guitar by taking the saddle out and you know maybe trying to shim under it yeah. or something yeah. you're not going to hurt anything just try yeah try getting a piece of fiber wood you can go to any wood supplier craft supplier and get a piece of wood well, the old thing we always did was, you know, take a playing card. You take the Joker because it was nice, hard yeah. cardstock with that laminated surface, and you yep. cut a little slice of that with a razor blade. Yep. Yeah. You could crank right. it up a little bit. I, I, in my guitar case, I carried two saddles. I've got a summer and a winter that I switch, and a few years I've gotten them mixed up, but See, that keeps me going year-round in the <laughs> south. <laughs> well, <that's, laughs> you know? yeah, that, yeah, the humidity here is, is monstrous. It's a, oh, yeah. it's such a yeah. different machine. And let's not even talk about the gnats. Yeah, no. But okay, so going back to this, what should you do, and what would you caution someone so, not to do? Obviously, most people probably need talking into fooling with their instrument. Yeah. Rather than talking out of it, I most people aren't going to go home and refinish their mandolin tonight just because you encouraged them to. Yeah, no. Monkey with it, but uh, kind of like, what would you lay out are some of the things that. You know, you should at least learn something about it, even if you don't do it. Right. Versus what's the thing you, you probably need to find somebody who's been doing it a long time and just hand it over. Well, for the guitar, banjo players, truss rod and changing your string um, is probably uh, a key. I, I'm pretty particular about the way I change strings. All my apprentices get taught uh, specific way. They probably get taught my way, I'm guessing. I don't I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't just know. put the string through and wind it down. I do I do a the what I call the over under. So you you put the string through the eyelet and you spin it and you, you start tightening and you always put your strings on so they go from the inside of the headstock and turn out. Right, right. To the outside of the, the tuner button. Then so the, the tail of that string is coming around for the very first time, and it, I always loop that string underneath right. the traveler. Okay, that's the same way So uh, Yep, and then as it comes around, the back side, right where the kink is, you go under. So the, the string will go under. So that way you've got basically a loop that's gone over the top of the 
the tail end of the string, and then the rest of the winds go below. Yeah. So over under. I've there, got some drawings of that process, and of course, Todd, you may want to look at them to confirm that they're exactly what you're talking about, but I'll put a link to that on the show notes page as and well. Then, and then for guitar players, uh, on the E and the A strings, so your lowest two strings, you want two complete wraps. On the D and the G strings, you want two and a half complete wraps. And then on your B and your high E strings, you want two full wraps. Or excuse me, three full wraps. So two, two and a half, and three. That that's, way, that's, that's really interesting that you bring up that the number of wraps because sometimes I've seen people poke the string in and pretty much wind up all the excess. And yeah. they've got such a, a bird nest that the string isn't even on the shaft anymore. Right. And other times you'll see, oh, they've got a half a turn. Right. Just because they misjudged yep. how much does it take. And in the piano business, when I when I went to work in a piano rebuilding shop, the thing that you want to end up with is four turns. Right. So where do you start, though? Because the string is going to stretch. And on a piano with the string so long, they really stretch a lot more. Uh-huh. Um, but I think it, it's the kind of thing, you change you change your strings en- enough for a couple of years, you're yeah. going to make some mistakes, but you're going to get on to it if you know what you're trying to do. Yeah, so I, I think it's good you mentioned it. When I was in college, I would change my strings every six to eight hours of playing time. And that was basically every day, if not during the day. Um, I was a real snobby tone guy, and then I realized I couldn't afford it. But, um, but it got to the point where I would start all my tuners in the same spot, tuning buttons all lined up vertical, and then I put the string on, and by the time I got them, they were again all lined up the exact same. Yeah, it gets you. But yeah, it's it's a feel thing. Just don't cut the the tail until you know you've got your your winds, and you'll be fine. Yeah. You, you might have a set that'll be weaker and maybe a string will snap on you but that's okay it's one set and you know what your limit is but yeah yeah the number of winds if you over wrap and have too much string on it just makes me nervous about slippage i mean because all of that loose string that's piled underneath is going to adjust and as you're pulling and i change tunings you know whether it's from standard to drop d all the time then you've got there's there's travel that's going to be in that coil that you can't account for. And that's why I have those because even up to three full turns, you're not going to eat up all of that space. And you've put enough down pressure from the nuts to the bottom of the string to kind of keep it tightly coiled up against itself. Are there any, um, and you may have to answer this later and send it to me, are there any what you would consider good resources on the web that, that show this stuff. Yeah. Uh, I mean, when I came up, there were some books. There were certain books. Guitar Player Magazine, magazine used to have a, a book that you could pick up at Barnes & Noble or something that was about an inch and a half thick, mm-hmm. and it was guitar repair or something. Right. And I learned so much from that book, and that was pre-YouTube. Today, I think a lot of people will just go to YouTube, search for, you know, how to change mandolin strings, and... At that point, it's a crapshoot. Right. You don't know if the person in the video has changed 10,000 sets right. or two sets. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you just don't know. And the person watching isn't yet qualified to, to know either. I've so had, 
if you have any sources and you want to send me any anything at all that, that kind of fits with this subject matter, because yeah. describing how to wrap a string on a podcast is probably not very effective. Yeah. As yeah, uh, but seeing it, I've had that experience too. Where I had I was teaching a guitar making class at a wood shop, and uh, I was telling people how to voice a guitar or you know how to voice a top, you know. And uh, I had one of my students was like, no. I saw in this video that you're supposed to do it this way. You're supposed to take it to this this level and so you can pick it up in the air and, and shake it and it sounds like a piece of tin, you know? And I was like I was like, Oh, you're talking about this guy's video and he's like, Yeah, that's the guy whose video I'm talking right. about. I'm like, that guy emailed me three days ago and that's his second guitar. Yeah. I was like, I built more than that, so we're gonna stick with me. And, and we can, yeah. It, and and that's, that's the tough thing is everybody, especially if you go to YouTube videos, everybody's excited and in the, you know, about building an instrument, maintaining an instrument or doing what they can. And it's not always best practices. Yeah. Um, I would just straight up, and I'm not, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you two main, main sites to, to check out. Um, and I'm not trying to sell either. But one of them is frets.com. Uh, it's Frank Ford's. Uh, of Griffin Guitars yeah, in Palo Alto. I'm very familiar with that, um, that. Now, it's an old site. It's one of the original build-yourself websites. It's super antiquated compared to what's coming out and all the flash stuff and this, you know, the, the panoramic photos that my new site is getting. But they are doing... Um, Frank's has old-school photo essays, essentially. Takes a picture, short description... Then you click the next, you know, the arrow to go to next. Next step, next short description. Right. There's that. And it's it's all on great old vintage instruments, and it's all best practices by one of the foremost and more practical repair techs in the country. Yeah, and I would suggest, too, if there is, if, if you're contemplating some work on your instrument, even if you know you're not going to tackle it personally, and probably that's 90% of the issues that could come up with your instrument. But having a little bit of understanding of how a real expert would tackle it will help you as you discuss it with the person yep. behind the counter where you do take it. Oh, well, I guess I can you, know, you just educate yourself a little bit. Don't, don't, <laughs> I used to have um, once in a while in the piano business somebody with a little too much information. Yep. Where they just watched one too many YouTube videos and began to think they and they they did know certain things but they were missing other things yep and and it was real hard to deal with somebody who knew a little too much sometimes yep. use use acetone but when doing but this. learn but you know it's not going to hurt you to learn something about it and ask questions of the guy yeah or gal who's doing the work for you well yeah and that's what I mean so if somebody says you have to use acetone to do this step well that's that's great but you also have to know that that acetone is going to eat through the finish so you have to tape off this right. area to make it safe you know yeah. and, and some guys will just use it because it's the right thing which it is but they don't understand that it's going to impact the finish of the instrument or yeah. whatever so it's it's knowing all that the second place I will I would send people to is the Stumac um, website and YouTube page now I yeah, will and, say and Stumac by the way is Stuart McDonald and I'll put a link to them yeah. on the show notes I, I bought uh, the banjo that I still play today is an old Stuart McDonald kit yeah I think it was called the 3R Eagle banjo kit back <laughs> nice. in the day I bought it in, in 1978 because I I was playing French horn in high school band 
And as I was coming out of that, I wanted to play banjo. And I remembered my parents had bought this French horn, paying something like $8 a month for it. Mm -hmm. And so I went back to that music store, Ken Stanton Music in Marietta, Georgia, thinking I can trade in that French horn and probably walk out with a banjo because the French horn was worth far more than that Gibson RB250. Right. And I thought, and if I can't, surely with this record we have... I'll be able to pay $10 a month and walk out with a Gibson banjo. Right. And I was shocked to find out they didn't treat banjos and guitars the same way they did, uh, <laughs> you know, horns, horns for right. the band yeah. programs. And I was just like, I didn't understand why. Why don't they, why aren't banjos treated the same way? So I was desperate for a banjo, but I didn't have enough money. So I bought the kit from Stuart McDonald, yeah. put it together, and it's one of the best sounding banjos I've ever run across. And I've had other other nice banjos and I always come back to that one they they have made a lot of good stuff in fact probably um, a lot of Gibson banjos have Stuart McDonald tone rings in them I know in certain periods of time they were providing parts to a oh, lot really? of the builders huh. yeah yeah I didn't know that but what I should what we should clearly say is that Stuart McDonald is a retail site you will find they have all the tools and things you need, um, and you can find you know magnifying visors online for cheaper. You can find the certain nippers for cheaper, but it's a, it's such a great resource. There are charts and explanation pages to all of their um, tools and all of that stuff. But the thing that's that's important for me to mention is the Dan Earlywine videos and Dan will show you yes it's a commercial for the tool he's using but he'll show you how to put in a cleat he'll show you how or talk you through uh, a proper I just sent a link today to a friend who needed some help on a neck reset and was like here's a great demonstration of this um, even some little simple things like I, I'm, I'm not positive they have a how to change your guitar strings on an acoustic guitar, but I think they do. Griffin does. Yeah. I, I mean, how many times have you seen end pins, you know, boogered up by somebody grabbing them with a pair of pliers? Right. And if you just... This is not to say that a guy who has changed his strings twice and made a YouTube video is wrong. Right. It's just you don't know. Right. But you can, you can trust what you see on Stuart McDonald. Now, admittedly... Uh, there are people who've been doing the same kind of work you are for 40 years and might disagree with them on certain of their techniques and yeah. approaches to things. But or disagree with it's me. minor technical right. sort of professional opinions rather than basic nuts and bolts right. things, you know. And, and there are more than one way to skin a cat, yep. but the last, some things are proven to work. The last source, well, I guess... So in, the, in that Stumac section is part of number two... Um, I would also recommend Dan Earlywine's Guitar Player Repair Guide book. Um, I have both the first, second, and third edition in my shop. The second seems to be off my shelf right now. But that's kind of like the repair guy's Bible for a guitar yeah. player or banjo player. How to adjust your neck, what the factory setting or measurements for, for string height, for neck relief. It's all in that book. I had a student come to me and literally spent all of his days watching YouTube videos and would come to me and say, what about this? What about this? I saw this on a video and it would be completely wrong. I was like, dude, just buy a book. 
and you've got it, and, uh, and it's there. The last thing, um, the last source I've got, and it's kind of, I can give you two places to go, is the whole Facebook Live thing right now. Um, I have two friends at Elderly Instruments, uh, Steve Olson and Joe Conkley, who are the chair and uh, vice chair of the repair department there. They're the two main guys. But Elderly Instruments has started in Michigan has started doing a Facebook Live where they jump on the bench of whichever repair guy is doing something cool. And today they showed how to do a, a 12th fret that was up too high. And are these... Uh Presentations archived where you go back and yep, see. Yep, we can go right on to that. Yep, yeah. So you don't right onto necessarily their page. have to be live, right? To yeah. Watch them. And they show they showed uh, a '58, I think it was a '58 Gibson Explorer, weird kind of tricked out guitar that came in. Um, they showed how to do neck reset or not neck reset. Excuse me, a high fret uh, dress um, by one of their techs who. You literally see him put the guitar on his bench, you see him grab his protectors, you see him tape on his protectors, you see him put paper in this area because it needs to be protected, but it needs to be lowered. Now, is he talking you through all this And he's, he's talking you through the process of what he's going to do, but you also see him doing the stuff he's not talking about. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, Michael Keller in my first fretboard journal magazine said, the best thing you can do is go into a guitar shop and, and you can learn a lot with your eyes wide open, you know? And that's not asking questions, but that's just watching as much as what's being said as, as what's not being said. You yeah. know? And I love elderly, and I will put a link on the show notes page. Pretty much everything we're talking about here, if people will go to grasstalkradio.com, slide down to this episode, and just click that, and there'll be a page with all these links. Everything that that we've talked about will be there, because... Some people might be listening to this years from now, and, yeah. and if any of this stuff changes, I'll I'll be updating that. I love Elderly. They uh, I've bought and sold instruments through them over the years, and for for a while when I when I did my first mandolin instruction book called Mandolin Masterclass, it was print only, and I was getting very weary of going back and forth to the post office sending out single orders for books. And so I transitioned over to, I was trying to find somebody who would sell my books mm-hmm. and just handle that for for me. And I approached Elderly, and they took it on, and they sold a lot of yeah. Mandolin Masterclass and Mandolin Training Camp. And eventually I went totally digital downloads, and they no longer carry the print versions anymore. Nobody does right. anymore, but... I had a, a good relationship with them, and I like them, and I trust them a lot. Well, and that's the thing. Elderly is the, instru- is the, is the repair shop that T.J. Thompson built, that repair department. He built, and T.J. Thompson, if you don't know, is like the premier Martin, vintage Martin rest- restores in the country, in, if not the world. Like, he's, he's the guy that can, can do these amazing restorations on instruments that other guys wouldn't take on because they're too precious or they're too whatever but tj started that um or chaired that department really kind of when it came into its own and when and he and steve and joe were there with him working and they're they're just as much uh carrying the torch for qualitative repair work um as any place else and 
I find their videos popping up on my feed all the time and I have them playing to me because it's good to get lessons from the yeah. guys that are doing it. On the string change, I think I saw Frank Ford at Griffin is doing uh, how-to videos as well, so that might be worth checking out. But the the Early Wine book, the Fretz.com, Stu Mac videos, um, and then the elderly stuff has been kind of the source of continuing ed for me. Yeah, going back to uh, try to recap, um, the what I see as one of the main points is that for a beginner, or l let's put it this way, my advice is if you're playing an instrument, there are some things that you need to be able to do yourself. Right. I don't recommend that everybody become a luthier no. or repair person or anything else, but certainly you need to learn how to adjust and maintain and care for your instrument. So let's switch gears here a little bit and talk about uh, the, the whole thing of, of repair. Okay. I mean, set up and and adjustments and things like that are kind of in one camp. Repairs are another, and they have you know things happen. Right. Uh, seams come apart, cracks appear. Yeah. Uh, guitar falls out of the stand when the cat brushes by it. There's whatever. and yeah. I anybody that wants to hear some of my instrument horror stories needs to buy my book, The Mandolin Handbook, where I devote way too much time to telling some of these crazy <laughs> stories. I may just do a podcast episode on um, the creative ways I've seen instruments, really nice instruments, destroyed. Right. But, you know, it happens, and usually there's an emotional reaction to what just happened. And sometimes, you know, I would think that's not the best time to make decisions about what to do. Uh, for the the classical example, smartly was when Bill Monroe's F five Lore mandolin was pr practically destroyed with a fireplace poker. Right. Thank God that the parts were all scooped up. Yeah. And lovingly carried, I, I think, by his banjo player, um, <laughs> rather than being tossed in the fireplace and burned. Because right. you could have an emotional reaction that's not justified. That, you know, it may look really bad, but a lot of things that look really bad can be straightened out. So what are the kind of, you know, just like what's that advice you give to somebody the moment something disastrous happens? What should they do right away? Like I always say, well, loosen the strings first. Yeah. Loosen, and, and what else? Loosen the strings and collect all the pieces. And don't throw it away. Yeah, and don't throw it away. Take it to a repair shop that can... That has some reputation, you know, and uh, and even even that can be tricky. Um, don't be afraid. So if it's an instrument of value, if it's an old Martin or if it is an old uh, John Monteleone mandolin that got stepped on or broken through or whatever, elderly I know has one on the bench or had one on the bench when I toured there that they were kind of working through. Um, things like that. And even like the first Lloyd Lore mandolin just got... Uh, completely restored. There's a fretboard journal uh, docu-series, um, I think, photo essay on that, or at least it was shared on the fretboard journal site, um, that there are guys that know how to repair that stuff, can put all the splinters and splices all back into place and kind of make a good, great functioning instrument from the wreckage. Yeah. Um, of course, there is the other side of that coin. Right. If Aunt Nellie sits on your mandolin and crushes it... Yeah. Depending upon what the instrument is, is yeah. or or the damage, 
it might be better to toss it in the fireplace, but don't make that decision without at least consulting yeah. people who might know more than you do. And they can, and they'll give you the the this is what you could do, this is what you should do, right. and then this is what both of those options will cost you, so you can make the decision. And now I've have I have instruments in my shop right now that should not be repaired, and I'm doing full restorations on on an instrument for what they're they're paying they could buy three additional instruments of the exact same instrument but it's their guy you know it's the guy they come home to and they play so badly they've got a giant hole through the top and you know boat epoxy on instead of whatever so um that's going to be up to you but any repair tech worth their salt will should just be able to tell you straight up what they should do and hopefully they'll be able to tell you whether or not they feel comfortable doing the work and that's a question you should ask too do you honestly feel comfortable taking on this repair of this instrument as there are moving being a repair tech in Minneapolis where there are brilliant repair techs all over town there's a school that churns out more every year um an accredited two-year, maybe it's a four-year program now that turns out students every year. You have to know your limits and do that. Coming down here to the south, I am I'm lucky in that I'm not a retail store. I'm not selling beginner instruments. I'm doing repairs and builds and teaching lessons, and I'm, I'm able to pull in from the other shops. But there's a, there's a window for good techs, and I'm finding that just because the shop said that they can do the repair when they may have needed a simple fret dress or just one or two frets have popped up and just needed to be gluing, the techs will um, decide that an entire fret job, brand new frets, need to be done, you know? So that's, that's the hard thing. And being able to be assertive with your instrument is just as important. It, for a major repair to a setup, saying how long is it going to take, holding them accountable, yeah. and... Um, yeah. I mean, just because you have never taken your guitar to be repaired doesn't mean that you should be ashamed for having to do it, or you should, I don't know, it's tough. Um, you want I, it done I think more. it really helps if, this is going back to that thing of asking around yeah. with the better players, that you get an introduction and that you get to know these people before the day right. of the crisis. Right, yep. Um, you know, that you've had a little setup work done, and, you know, you've been in the shop and brought them a box of donuts, and, yeah. you know, if you get friendly with somebody, they, they're more likely to treat you fairly, I think, in the end. Well, yeah. Because, you know, you become friends. I, I'm also not recommending you, you be a pest around somebody's shop because right. sometimes the guy's got to get some work done, <laughs> you know. And it's, it's yeah. hard because... You know, it's a, a lot of people want to hang. drop in yeah. and hang yeah. out. Well, and and that can be fun too if the if the if the tech is is, is amiable. But um, yeah, and if the timing's right yeah. too. But yeah, if yeah. it's four o'clock and you got to pick up your kids from school and yep. the guy wants to shoot the breeze about old Martins, yeah, it's not the best time. But you know, the the person behind the counter has to put up with a bit of that if any business That's in the public the has to yeah, do it. For sure. But, well, this has been interesting. I think you've given some great resources. Um, before before we close this one out, and this is a, a pretty long one, 
Um, yeah, sorry. Let's talk. No, I think it's great. <laughs> hey, it's free, and the longer the better. I think. Yeah, I was trying originally to to shoot for thirty minutes, minutes, but sometimes you know you just there's more stuff that comes up. Yeah. But uh, the last thing I want to talk about is uh, you like ending up or... down here in America's Georgia. Yeah. It's a long way from Minnesota. Yeah. A, how do you like it? B. Um, and, and we hope you'll stick around because you've been a godsend to the musicians in this area. But uh, just how's the culture shock been? And, and in terms of the instruments that you're working on, I'm sure it's a, a little different. It's, it's, it is and it isn't. It's um, at the core of it. So in Minneapolis, I was on call at, at, uh, at three studios where a band would come in uh, the you know, and then they go to sleep and want to record at three o'clock the next day, and it's you know eleven o'clock at night, and they'd say, "Well, they've got five guitars or fifteen guitars that they want to record with the next morning. Can you come in and set them up overnight?" And so I'd do that, or I'd go to First Avenue and and work for things, work for bands that were doing tour rehearsals, or I'd have guys bring me instruments. So it was it was a different setup. Here I'm kind of open to the public. I'm not as exclusive, but um, the people are the same. I mean, musicians are musicians are musicians. They they want to know their instruments are taken care of by a competent tech. They need help, otherwise they wouldn't be in your shop. And, you know, and they're loyal. If you do good work, they'll come back. And that's kind of the way it is here. I mean, I've got in here, in the shop here, I just sold a 1988 um, Paul Reed Smith multifoil. It's those crazy, like, splotchy painted guitars that they did as a limited run their third year being in business that we sold I sold in three hours you know for him on a consignment there's a 65 um, Fender Mustang in here right now that I'm refinishing as soon as I finish my spray booth I know you're working on some bluegrass type things in here too because my friend John T. Yeah, has so that's his a flat iron. In that's here. an 85, 85 flat iron. It's an eighty-five, eighty-five F5 flat iron that I'm. Somebody had refretted, and then they they sheared nearly all the frets, the fretboard down to re-level it out. And when they did that, they made the channels so thin that I couldn't get the tang for actual. Well, when it was refretted. It was sheared down, and then it was refretted with two larger frets. Yeah, they I remember what, holding that mandolin in my hands and noticing that the side dot markers yeah, were, were half, at the top. Yeah, half sheared, yeah. So you could tell. I thought at first maybe the board had been radiused, and and that's why the edges were down. But but the, I'm sure the, the point I'm who, getting at is obviously you're getting some bluegrass yeah. instruments in here, too, and I understand you may be... Um, I see some forms back there, yeah, yeah. mandolin-shaped yeah, forms, so tell me about the mandolin build project. So the mando, for me, um, our friend John, again, came in and wanted to make a mandolin, and, and me having buddied around with with Mike Chemnitzer and with Chris Thiele and those dudes in Punch Brothers, I've seen some pretty killer mandolins. And um, I was like, man, and as a guitar maker... So with a guitar, anything that you do doesn't really have an impact until you get to the end. You know, there's so much space that if you if you take off and you know if your top's 120 thousandths and you take off an extra thousandth of an inch, it's not going to make that big of a difference. You know, 
It will and it won't. I mean, that's in the air. But multiply that by 100 when you get down to a mandolin because any little bit you touch is going to change everything. And that for me is the end goal, you know, to be able to put what I know, what to do with what I've been taught by guys like Jim Olson and Brian Gallup and, and Charlie Hoffman and Michael Keller and Brian Applegate and all those guys um, and be able to take that instrument building knowledge and put it into a smaller instrument as the mandolin. I'm not a violin player. I, I can't play violin, but I know how to fret a fretted instrument. So I'm excited to, to try a mandolin. So what I'm building is... Um, Mike Chemnitzer built this two-point mandolin that I, his buddy Don, uh, who's a pretty famous mandolin player, I'll send you who it is, I can't remember his last name, um, has, and it's this gorgeous two-point mandolin, and I thought it was the raddest-looking thing I've ever seen. Like, I'm a total skateboard kid, metal, <laughs> guitar, so to, to have a two-point nugget mandolin that I was able to take pictures of um, when I was interviewing Brian Gallup for the Fretboard Journal... Um, went to a bluegrass festival in Michigan um, the weekend after my interview and played that mando and then saw an original lore mandolin case that I've got pictures of too, which are just insane. Um, but yeah, so I'm building a two-point, but it's got the third on the bottom, so it's really kind of a three-point, but it's a two-point upper upper bout yeah. um, mando. And I'm carving it like I do my uh, electrics where I've got a relief in the back, essentially... And I've kind of done as a as a spine that goes across, um, but yeah. And then I do my whole like California treatment where I've got the laminations that go through the the center to give it kind of the surfboardy well, lines. Well, the good thing about the mandolin world today is if you if you built that mandolin, I'm just guessing in 1970 or 75. Yeah, people look sideways at it because mostly. Mandolin players were bluegrass players. Yeah. Today, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a lot of music being played on a mandolin that doesn't. You don't necessarily have to have a lower copy these days, and right. people will still buy them. Yeah. I, I'm shocked. You know, when I started uh, playing mandolin, I didn't have a very good mandolin, and again, I thought, well, I can't afford what I want. Right. So maybe I could build one, and I built one from the Seminoff book and finished it. I think that was in 1982 or three. Right. Didn't know what I was doing. Didn't have a good mandolin to even look at right. to compare. And uh, but I played it. I, I I did the first Cedar Hill album on that mandolin and played it for a couple of years until I got the flat iron. But it was a every gig. At every gig, somebody came up to me and wanted to look at that thing. Right. It was so unusual for somebody to have built their own mandolin. There were some people doing it. Right. But not the... Today, if you go on the Mandolin Cafe and look at the, the builders who have posted something, it's almost like everybody's building a mandolin. Right. And so you're seeing a lot more variety in the colors and the... Just well, the had, treatment of the instrument. You had the chops to back it up, though, too. Like that's that's the other <laughs> that's thing. That's debatable. Is guys with the, who built their own instruments and show that it can be effective, you'll get more attention. You know. However, I will say this: uh, the, that mandolin sounded good over a PA. Right. But when as soon as I got the flat iron and played it, I didn't ever get that other one out ever right. again. Right. And I, it just hangs around the house. When my son was born... Is that a Carlson built? It's yeah. Yours, yours, Mine it? is, yeah. yeah. In fact, John's mandolin 
very close in time to mine. His is an F5, mine's an F5 artist. So his has tone bars, mine's X-brace. Right. And mine is a lot more beat up than his. Well worn. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a lot of a lot of road rash. Well, his yeah, his was handled by classical players who who took care of it, and you. Oh, that is true. You worked yours. That mandolin started out in the hands of Charlie Rappaport, who was a fantastic. I would classify him his as an ethnic mandolin player. He's a Russian mandolinist, and also plays balalaika and all kind of things. And I, I got to know him around Atlanta when I was playing in the Atlanta Mandolin Orchestra. And Charlie acquired that. I think Charlie maybe wanted to play a little bit of bluegrass, and I saw that mandolin when he first got it back in 85. And there was Charlie standing there at a bluegrass festival, and I showed him a couple of chords, and it's probably the first and last time he ever played any bluegrass. And that thing (laughs) ended up um, um, owned by uh, Jim Kirkland, who was out there working for Mandolin World News, and then it sat around for a long time, and now John's playing it. So yeah. it's got a pretty interesting history. Yeah, it's it's been a nice guy to have around the shop. Well, the last thing I want to touch on here, because we've... Don Sternberg. Don right. Sternberg's two-point nugget mandolin. There you go. That's, that's what it is. Sorry Anybody not time. familiar with Don, uh, once again, I'll put a link to it, to his his stuff. It's pretty amazing. Uh, and he was back around in the old mandolin world days, and I think he, we talked about him a little bit on on the uh, some previous episode. But anyway, this thing is getting really long, so let's yeah. let's close it out by give me a little bit of a rundown. You've um, mentioned Fretboard Journal a few times. I fell in love with that magazine. My daughter bought me a subscription. Awesome. Uh, Good As a her. birthday present or Christmas present one year, and I was lucky that that's a win. You know, it was you know Tony Rice's guitar was in the first one I got my hands on. Yeah, that and I just fell in love with that magazine. Six or seven. I, I was like, as an old printer, yeah, who never printed anything close to that. I was a business cards and envelopes and right. kind of guy. But I understand what goes into that quality of a of a magazine. It's a beautiful thing. And when you moved down here, and then I found out that you sort of had a working relationship with that, just tell us about your connection with Fretboard Journal so the, and anything you might have coming up in the in the near future. The twins, uh, I have twins. Uh, found out we were pregnant with kids and realized that I couldn't tour or shouldn't tour as much as I was. Um, so I needed some more cash to kind of come up with that. So I decided... I was going to take my journalism degree and actually finally start writing. So I submitted six story ideas to Acoustic Guitar Magazine, and they turned me down flat. And I've been collecting Acoustic Guitar Magazine since 1992, you know. So I thought I knew the magazine. I thought I knew where it was, but I got turned down. um, wouldn't work. I got the very first edition of um, the Fretboard Journal, which had Grisman on the front and, and... I think they're going for like 200 bucks now on eBay, I saw, okay. which is crazy, just the, the first magazine. Um, and in the opening paragraph, there's a letter from the editor. It's saying, you know, welcome to our first magazine. This is what we hope to do. Last paragraph said, um, we also look forward to hearing any story ideas from you. So I went back to that acoustic guitar reject uh, email, took acoustic guitar magazine out, took put in fretboard journal and sent it off and uh 
and Jason Verlindi, the publisher, uh, emailed me back and was like, these look like great stories. He's like, do you have a writing sample? So I, uh, I booked all the bands in college when I was at St. Olaf, and um, so I published my own music magazine with my publicity budget. So I just sent him a really awful version of my music magazine, and uh, he was like, great, let's start with this story. What was the first story you did? The first story I did ended up in the number four edition um, with John Hartford on the front. Yeah. And uh, it, uh, it was all about the Minnesota guitar makers. So it had Jim Olson, Michael Keller, Charlie Hoffman, Brian Applegate. And then I threw in Kevin Ryan, who is a guitar maker from California, but is heavily influenced by the Minnesota guys. I was trying to get a Minnesota or a guitar maker of every five to ten years and I just hit a gap and Kevin was the closest one to fit in. So I've had I've had four um, four articles placed in print. Didn't you do one on focusing on guitar builders who build with Brazilian rosewood? Yeah, so Something that was like the that. second the Something second like article that. I did and that was in number eleven. Um, what was that fourteen? Uh, one of the two. So but yeah, I interviewed uh, Dick Boak from Martin Guitars, Jeff Trougett, um, who builds those amazing, amazing uh, Brazilian guitars, up until my first uh, Asia. Oh, so it was Brazil. No, so I, so it was, I misunderstood. Was, I thought it was the wood. Yeah, the story was how um, at the current time in 2008. So we are talking about Brazilian rosewood, Brazilian not rosewood. Brazilian guitars. No, no, no. Okay, no, okay. Then I had the story right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So I interviewed. So I was curious on how Brazilian rosewood was being used in the current marketplace because at the time, Paul Reed Smith was making guitars with solid Brazilian rosewood necks, and Jeff Trugget was making these amazing guitars that you'd see in the advertisements and magazines that were just gorgeous and all the the spider webbing on the back and and I knew Martin started the tradition so I. I interviewed Paul Reed Smith and Joe Nags of the private at the who at the time was at the the chair of the private stock department at PRS. Um, Dick Boak, who uh, talked to me, and then uh, Jeff Trogan, and I think there was somebody else a part of there that I wasn't sure of. I know I interviewed Mike Doolin, but I don't think I I, um, I added him to the article. But yeah, it was just talking about the current state of. Of Rosewood yeah. as it was being used. I didn't get into any, any of the controversy because there was John Thomas, uh, I think, um, uh, wrote uh, an accompanying article and we, they kind of packaged it together as the current state of, of CITES and how Brazilian Rosewood is used or um, kind of the quandaries that the, the instrument makers at the time were finding them as far as building with sometimes legal sometimes not legal material so um well i understand john let the cat out of the bag the other day about an upcoming or i i think upcoming interview that you're doing which i think will be right up a lot of bluegrass people's alley even though they're not certainly not a purely bluegrass group but yeah i'm certainly at times and I mentioned them once already this interview, but the I, I spent some time with Mandolin Orange and. Um, yeah. Oh right, well you're talking about his guitar. Yeah, well his mandos. His. Oh, you're talking about the yeah, mandolin when yeah, you're talking his, about those yeah. setup heights. Oh, those are pretty high. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah, the guitar, the guitar heights. His, 
he has a fifties Gibson. I'll have to go back and listen to what you yeah. said. I do remember now that you. But then, you but yeah, he has him. Sullivan. I think Sullivan uh, A series, and then he had a Henderson F five that he just got, and they they were fantastic. But yeah, that group, I uh, it's like breathing to me. The he's the exhale and she's the inhale. You know, it's a. Uh, it was really kind of fun to watch them talk about their music and and their process and then just to be around I mean any any true musician just it it's just who they are it was really kind of fun to do that but yeah so I've got a mandolin orange study in the work or story in the works I'm doing a, a story on a guitar maker Jason Costell from Phoenix who is amazing uh, builds these incredible acoustic guitars um, with these um uh, like stained glass window uh, rosettes that are just beautiful. Oh, yeah. And then um, doing a story on my experience with Michael Hedges and uh, Savage Audio, um, Michelle Beardsley uh, of now St. Paul Guitar Repair, who's done more Larson Dyer Harp Guitar Repair Restos um, than anybody I've ever seen. So... Um, it sounds like they have you fully booked up for the... Yeah, I've got... It's been really great. Jason's published everything that I've submitted and told me to just keep coming with more stuff. And if I ever got through all of this and had some time to sit down and actually transcribe, I'd have more in the works, but um, or more printed. But it's it's been great. I mean, to be a part of a magazine that cares about musicians and the stories as much as they do about yeah. the, the advertising And content. the photography. Yeah. Wow. It's amazing. Yeah, Jason Jason just released a podcast. Sorry to, to hype another podcast on um on your podcast, but um the hundred they just did the hundred and twenty fifth episode of the Fretboard Journal podcast. Yeah. So Megan Wells, who's another builder, I've got a story that I've been sitting on and needing to do as an archtop maker, interviewed Jason about the start and his background, uh, and how the Fretboard Journal started and all of that um, just kind of went live last week. Well, to the listeners um, who may be listening to this the week this episode comes out, you got some great stuff to look forward to. But the nature of podcasts is we don't know uh, in what century someone may be listening to this. So for you people in the future, you may have to uh, consult an archaeologist to get copies (laughs) of these old fretboard journals. But if you're living in summer 2017... Uh, I'd recommend you get yourself a subscription. Yeah, Fretboard Journal is is uh, it's eight by ten photo stock quality paper. There's only twenty percent advertising throughout the entire magazine, and the ads are beautiful as well. The ads are fantastic. They're all... you hardly ever see an ad that looks like it was, you know. Being in the printing business uh, for many years, I'm not anymore, but I used to see a lot of bad design where, yeah, you know. Somebody, uh, as soon as computers came out, everybody instantly thought, right. well, I could design a flyer. or right. uh, yeah. And they couldn't. I mean, they could, but they didn't look good. Right. And the ads in there, you can tell a lot of them are being done by whoever the house artists are, are probably yeah. influencing some of the ads. Even the ads are beautiful. Yeah, yeah. They, they've had some really great um, art directors and some really... I've had, I've had some really great editors, although that's kind of a lie. The Fretboard Journal has never altered any of my text so I've been lucky in that I haven't ever been severely edited um, so it just means I have to keep 
Well, that's a, a testament to your work. <laughs> it is. I just, I know. I just think, think of a record like producer never offering a suggestion to an artist but from behind the glass. Yeah. I mean, it, I doubt that's ever happened. But. Yeah. So I'm. Yeah, I've been. I've been really excited, and it's fun for me too. I mean, when I get bogged down with stuff here in the shop, it was great to just go to. I went to Birmingham, Alabama, and then to Atlanta and watch two mandolin orange shows and just well next time you pull something like that off call me and i'll ride with you yeah yeah that'd be great (laughs) that would be fun maybe knock out an interview for this show anyway todd thanks for spending all this time i don't know how long we went uh pretty long i'll probably put it out as a single episode but who knows i might break it into two but okay thanks yeah no problem happy to be here well i hope you enjoyed this visit with todd Todd is a pretty interesting guy and a very talented artist, both musically and working with wood and working with instruments. On the show notes page, I'll have a few links to some of the things we talked about. So be sure to go over to to, to grasstalkradio.com, slide down to this episode, and click there and take a look at the show notes for this episode. And once again, to everybody who has been over to iTunes and rated and reviewed the show, I do appreciate that a lot. And also, I've put together a little Grass Talk Radio supporter pack. So this is a way for a person who might want to financially support the ongoing existence of this podcast with a little financial contribution. I'll, I will put a link on the, on the show page, grasstalkradio.com. And you can go over and check that out. Basically, you can uh, contribute any amount that you so choose. And I have a little complimentary package of goodies that you can download when you do that. Anyway, and thank you to the people who have already stepped up and done that. that. That goes a long way. It's amazing what 10 or 20 bucks does to finance something like podcasting. Because it's not free. It's almost free. But a little bit helps, and it lets me know who's who's listening and who is appreciative of all the time that goes into this stuff. So anyway, thanks, everybody, and I'll talk to you in the next podcast.